I'm going to read these first eight verses. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoken to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Earlier this year, uh, a movie entitled Jesus Revolution came out. And it documented the early years of what has become known as the Jesus People Movement. This was a revival amongst mostly young adults who were involved in what was called the hippie movement of the time. Their mantra was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so they were not the most likely group of people that you would expect to come to Jesus in large numbers. But it's estimated that around 2 million 20-somethings gave their life to Jesus between 1967 and 1977 as a result of that movement. The prime years of that movement took place between 1967 and 1972, but the ripple effects continued into 1977, which happens to be the year that Denise and I came to know Jesus as our Savior as a couple of 21-year-olds, and so we caught the last ripples of that movement. One of the primary churches that was involved in all of this was Calvary Chapel, located in Southern California. The pastor there was a man named Chuck Smith, and he wrote about what happened in that time in a uh, later. And he said, between the end of 1960, I'm sorry, between the end of 1968, going into 1970, they averaged 200 professions of faith a week through the various meetings and Bible studies that they were holding. There was a cove down uh, off the Pacific Ocean where they did their baptisms. 500 people got baptized a month. And Calvary Chapel began to plant churches around the United States, and there are now over 1,700 in their network. The revival was felt in other areas of the country as well. First Baptist Church, a very traditional Baptist church in Houston, Texas, decided that they wanted to reach out to the college students that were in that area. So they held a week of evangelistic meetings that were designed specifically to reach that particular target group. And in that week, they saw 4,000 college students give their life to Christ. As a result, the church decided that they would hire a full-time pastor of discipleship specifically to follow up with them. 
It's really interesting that on April the 8th, 1966, a year before all this began, Time Magazine ran an infamous cover story that was entitled, Is God Dead? It was the first time that they did a cover with just letters on there, no picture. And the article concluded that the God that was presented by the church of the time was indeed irrelevant to the new culture and new values that were beginning to rise up in the United States in the mid-60s. Fast forward to June 21st, 1971, and that same magazine, Time Magazine, ran a cover with a picture of Jesus on the front. And it had Jesus' revolution and letters across him like an arch. And almost the entire uh, issue was devoted to talking about what God had done in the lives of college-age students at that point over the last six, seven years. It was God's way of saying, I'm very much alive, thank you. The Jesus movement is a great example of God deciding to do something totally unexpected. Something that nobody was anticipating, including his people. The people around that time didn't always recognize what was going on. Not every conservative evangelical church was accepting of these new spiritual siblings because they were coming out with, with some of the trappings of a lifestyle that they felt was coming out of the pit of hell itself. And like anything involving people, the Jesus people movement was not perfect, but God's hand was definitely upon it. The Bible is filled with God doing the unexpected. So I'm not exactly sure why we're so surprised when he chooses to do so. And it's not uncommon for the people that are around when God decided to do something unexpected to not recognize it was God that was working. One of the more humorous elements for me of the Gospels is this picture of Jesus constantly shaking his head at the 12 disciples at their cluelessness. Their lack of understanding of what he was saying or something that he was doing. One of the prime examples of that is in John chapter 4, as Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And then the disciples come, and she leaves, and a few minutes later, the entire town is coming out to the well to hear what Jesus has to say. And then they watch while the majority of those people trust him as Messiah and give their hearts to him. And they're still, at the end of that time, talking to Jesus about whether he wants something to eat. Sometimes his own people don't recognize when God is doing the unexpected. Well, we're looking at one of those times that God did the unexpected right here in Acts chapter 10. And all of us have experienced the effects of this moment. Just like Denise and I experienced the ripple of the Jesus people movement as we came to Christ in 1977, we still feel the ripple effects of Acts chapter 10. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But what God does in Acts chapter 10 was far more unexpected than what he did with the hippies. Because Acts chapter 10 is where God opens the door of the gospel to the Gentile world. Gentiles had come to Jesus before this in small numbers and isolated pockets, but this is where God opens the door wide. 
and the gospel is presented to the Gentile world. We're going to see three things that God does when he decides to do the unexpected. We're going to see the fact that God is always working in the world around us, but he's often doing it in ways that we don't immediately see and that we're not anticipating. While he's doing that, a second thing is God is always preparing us to join him. At the appropriate moment, he will reveal what he's doing and he invites us as people to join him in what he is doing. And through that, God, number three, will work through us to accomplish his new work. God's always working. He's preparing us to join him. And when those two things come together at the appropriate moment, we get to be the instrument that God will use to do something new and something unexpected. So the first thing is, God is always working in the world around us often in ways we do not immediately see or expect. Just looking at the first few verses again here in Acts 10, it says that at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And one day at about three in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius... It would be really interesting if Luke would have revealed to us what stimulated Cornelius to start this spiritual journey. What was it that caused Cornelius or or got him thinking, I want to know the God of the Jews? Because he's not a likely candidate to do this. Number one, He is a Gentile, but he's a Roman Gentile. There was this sense of superiority if you were a Roman for good reason. (laughs) You simply were dominating the known world at the time. And if there was a group of people that you looked down on as being totally inferior to you as a Roman, it was the Jews. And the Jews, on their side, they are being raised to hate you. So it's this cultural dynamic that which you just hold each other in total disdain. But he's also a centurion, and not just any centurion. He is a centurion of the Italian regiment. This is the regiment that supplied the bodyguards for for Pharaoh. Right, wrong wrong uh, testament. These are the ones that provide the uh, the bodyguards for the emperor. These are select soldiers. And as a centurion, no group of people were more troublesome to the Romans and the Roman army than the Jews. They were constantly in this unsettled state, and not usually open, but for years, these little rebellious acts that kept popping up until finally, in 30 years from the events of Acts chapter 10, the Jews are going to rise up in total rebellion, And Roman response will send an entire army into this region. They will slaughter hundreds of thousands of Jews. They will destroy most of the city. They will level the temple. And so, again, Cornelius, as the centurion, the leader of this particular group of highly qualified and specialized soldiers, is not a good candidate to be seeking the God of the Jews. 
And so we'd love to understand what was it that stimulated him, but we do know this. Despite his status and despite his accomplishments as a soldier, something is missing. Something is missing in the life of Cornelius, and he feels it so acutely that he's willing to explore a relationship with the God of the Jews to try to find it. People of this world know they're missing something. They simply have a different response and reaction to what they do in response to the need. Not everybody will choose to seek a spiritual solution to the emptiness of the soul, but God is always at work. And there are many, there are many who are. And it's evident that God is doing this work in the life of Cornelius. He has drawn Cornelius toward himself, and now God is going to draw him to Jesus Christ in salvation. You know, as Acts chapter 10 opens, almost all Christians are from a Jewish background. There's just this spattering of a few Gentiles who have come to know Jesus, but the vast majority of Christians are coming out of a Jewish background. Peter is 40 miles away at this moment in a town called Joppa, and he has no idea who Cornelius is. He's got no idea that God is working in the life of Cornelius. He's got no idea that God is about to break down this barrier between Jews and Gentiles and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles because God hasn't done that before, and so obviously he doesn't expect the God to start to do that now. But God is working. And while he's working in the life of Cornelius, he's also working in the life of Peter. Because there's some some preparation work that needs to take place before Peter's going to be ready to deliver the gospel to Cornelius. And so while God is working behind the scenes in ways that we often don't see, preparing to do something new, he's preparing us to join him. He's preparing us to join him. We pick up the story in verse 9 of here at chapter 10. And it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter! Kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. So everything on this sheet is not kosher. Forbidden to be eaten by him as a Jew. And look at verse 15. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for, why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. 
A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. As a faithful Jew, Peter had been taught that it was a sin against God himself to go into a Gentile's house. He had been taught that it was a sin against God himself to even allow a Gentile into his house. And even now, after he's had this experience of walking with Jesus and the church has been birthed and we're now years into the church time, he still has this view of Gentiles. I don't go to them, they don't come to me. There's still this gap, this barrier between them. And so God uses a vision. And he uses this vision to tell Peter that this old division between Jews and Gentiles is done. It's history. It's over. And that I, God, am about to do something brand new. I am going to bridge the gap between Jews and Gentiles, and I'm going to bring them into one church. I'm going to bring them into this one body of people, and they will be brought together and will be one and united by their mutual relationship with Jesus Christ. No more gap. No more Jew and Gentile. One body. One group. All united by faith in my Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to use you, Peter, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm going to use you to begin this new work. I'm going to use you to unlock the door that brings the light of the gospel into what has been a very dark room. And God has to repeat the vision three times. I find that humorous, but I find that so Peter. But you know what? We can understand. Because this is a lot for Peter to process. This is a whole new paradigm. This is a whole new way of seeing the world. And when we have old views and prejudices, when you and I have stereotypes and assumptions about people and groups of people, it's really hard to break those down and put those aside. But Peter has to if he's going to accomplish what God has for him to do. So three times he gives him this vision. And Peter gets it. He understands it. And his first step, and this is great, the first step he takes in this is he lets these Gentiles come into his home and entertains them with hospitality as friends. That's a huge step. Then the next day, we see how God works through us to accomplish the new work that he has. Peter obeys God. He travels the 40 miles to Caesarea, and he shares the gospel with Cornelius and his household. Pick it up in verse 23, the end of verse 23. It says, The next day Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. Now, all those other believers are Jews, by the way, Jewish believers. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. 
And while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Cornelius has a heart for all the people that he knows. He wants them to learn about whatever it is that Peter's about to share. Verse 34 says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Walls are down. And then he shares about Jesus, the story of Jesus. And as he shares that story, we get to verse 46. I'm sorry, verse 43. And he concludes with these words. All the prophets testify about him, that is Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Because God was doing something new. He wanted to make sure that they that Peter and the other believers understood exactly what was happening. And so this manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, which the Holy Spirit comes on everyone who puts faith in Christ, but we don't often see this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. They do so that Peter and the Jews can see, yes, God is in this. And this whole room full of people give their life to Jesus Christ. In the world, in the church, they'll never be the same. Through the ministry of Paul, which is going to start very shortly, within 10 years, the majority of Christians in the world are no longer from Jewish backgrounds or from Gentile backgrounds. And if you are a Christian this morning and you're not Jewish in your background, you can trace your salvation back to Acts chapter 10. And God is still doing the unexpected in and through his church. He's doing it locally right here in our community, and he's doing it around the world. And we need to be prayerfully careful that we don't miss it when he does. From the time that Denise and I arrived here at Grace Bible Church, and I will say this until our ministry here is done, we legitimately, clearly from the Lord, had a strong sense that he's got something new and fresh that he's going to do in this body of believers. It was palatable. And we looked at each other and said, we can't believe God is giving us the privilege of being a part of this. And he's been preparing you for the last year. And we'll prepare you however long it's going to take for him to bring his new lead pastor. And then he's got something new, he's got something fresh, and he has something exciting for you. Prayerfully, prayerfully, prayerfully prepare yourselves to join him. Because this work will be awesome, but it will probably be unexpected and not what you're thinking it's going to be but it's going to further his work in this community and it will bring honor and glory to his name. God will do the unexpected and in the moment when it's ready, he will invite you to join him. That's going to be exciting.
Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for all that you continue to do in our midst and around us. And pray, Father, that we indeed will be prayerfully ready to join in as you reveal to us what that is and how we are to join in. Thank you for the work that you have done. Thank you for the work that you are doing. And thank you for the work that you will do in the years to come. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me?